Just before we begin, I would just say a word of thanks to those who were here yesterday to help set up for uh, the celebration of Christmas here at the church. And we know this is a different year and the church isn't quite as uh, decked out as we normally do it, but it looks beautiful, tastefully done. And so thank you for uh, to all those who helped uh, yesterday in getting things set up. And it's no easy task to set up those tree, that big tree and um, the other ones that we usually do here at the back. So thank you to all who helped yesterday. Well, we are in the last two chapters of the book of Psalms, chapters 149 and chapters 150. So if you would take your Bible, please, and turn to those two chapters, Psalm 149 and Psalm 150. And as I tell you to turn there, today will mark the end of our survey of the book of Psalms, uh, the longest sermon series I have ever preached, meaning, of course, the longest sermon series most of you have ever had to listen to. When I uh, began this series, I had literally absolutely no intention of spending this amount of time in the book of Psalms. Uh, people have come and gone, and we've been here in the book of Psalms. In fact, the truth is my original t- intent was just to preach a short series from the Old Testament book of Psalms that might serve to encourage us in the comforting truths about God and His ways, thus making us better worshipers of Him. And um, But as happens many times in the preparation, the preaching of sermons, the Spirit of God superintends in both those areas, that is the preparation and the preaching. Um, and by His blessing, even through the weakness of preaching, this yet powerful word It all serves his purposes. And certainly that has been my prayer for this series, um, this survey from start to finish, that this survey of the Psalms would serve and has served God's good purposes. In fact, I will uh, read for you the way that I introduced this series in the very first sermon that I preached on the survey on, and I hesitate to tell you this, but I will, on April the 14th, 2013. Yes, you heard the date correctly. I said this, Today we will begin a new series entitled Surveying the Psalms. In this series, we will not consider every chapter and verse, but we will pause at certain psalms that we might better know the character of our God, be encouraged in our praise, be reminded of His goodness, cautious of our purity, and always careful to give God thanks. I trust that such a survey will encourage and refresh us spiritually and be used to help us to better be worshipers of our triune God, especially in these spiritually challenging days in which we live. That was seven years ago. We can hope for great encouragement by spending time in such a spiritually fruitful book of the Bible. Well, as the series developed, my list of theological works also increased and included a number of varied sources with a heavy reliance upon W.S. Plumer's studies in the book of Psalms 
Alan P. Ross's three volumes uh, series, A Commentary on the Psalms, Samuel Isles Pierce's two volumes, An Exposition of the Psalms, C.H. Spurgeon's A Treasury of David, and Nancy DeClass Walford, uh, Rolf A. Jacobson, and Beth Laniel Tanner's work, The Book of Psalms. Excuse me. I spent a lot of time in those books, All Rich uh, Studies Indeed, which I labored, believe it or not, to condense into, I pray, manageable and applicable sermons. Indeed, I would commend you as a church family, for you have been faithful as we traveled through these psalms together. Nary a complaint, um, perhaps a jest, and maybe uh, many a truth was said a jest, but nary a complaint about our time together in the psalms, and I commend you for that. And indeed, together we have covered much theological ground. Consider this. In our survey, 186, including today's sermons, have been preached on 48 different chapters of the Psalms. Our survey has included sermons from each of the five books of the Psalms. 75 sermons from book 1, chapters 1 through 41. 22 sermons from book 2, chapters 42 through 72. Four sermons from book 3, chapters 73 through 89. 12 sermons from book 4, chapters 90 through 106. And 71 sermons from book 5, that's chapters 107 through 150. 17 sermons were preached from Psalm 145. 13 sermons from Psalm 18. 11 sermons from Psalm 146. And three sermons from Psalm 119. So there. (laughs) Our survey also included a number of chapters which were considered in one sermon, just to show you that I could do it. Psalm 15, 23, 78, 100, 121, 127, 130, and 142. Well, that all brings us then to our conclusion today and the last two chapters of the book of Psalms. And I believe that we're concluding on the proper note, which is centered on not only our praise to God... And certainly as we rehearse all that we've covered regarding God, his character, his ways, redemption throughout the book of Psalms, we see that there is much for for us to give God praise for. But we also need to be certain of how we are to praise God, particularly in the corporate worship setting. And that's really the, the fundamental way in which we will bring to conclusion our survey. How? Can we be certain that we are rendering God the praise that he is due in the way that he wants that praise to be rendered? So we return to these last two chapters and, and, and we're, li- we're thinking primarily about the corporate setting and we're asking this question. Are we free to praise God in any way in which we see fit or does God regulate our praise as we worship him together corporately. Are we free 
to, to worship God in any way that we see fit? Or are we to worship God in the way that he regulates? Is our praise to be given according to his dictates? Such a question is appropriate for us because praise to God has been, of course, the theme of Psalm 146 through 150, the Psalms that are known as the praise collection of which Spurgeon said, we are now among the hallelujahs for the rest of our journey lies through the delectable mountains. I've given you this quote, but it's so good to help us to understand as he says, all praise is to the close of this book from Psalm 146 to Psalm 150. The key is high pitched. The music is upon the high sounding cymbal. Oh, for a heart full of gratitude that we may run and leap and glorify God even as these psalms do. So God deserves enthusiastic praise, exuberant praise. As we've said, such a response to all that we've read throughout the entirety of these 150 uh, chapters would be, of course, appropriate for us as God's people. And these final two chapters certainly help to season our souls as we respond in joyous praise to God. The themes of these last two psalms, again, are exuberant, and they're overflowing with praise to God. There's just this crescendo that goes forward as you read both of these psalms together, both likely authored by David. Psalm 150 has been called the grand doxology of the collection. And two weeks ago, we said that we would be considering these two psalms together because of their parallel nature and their similar themes. And we considered both because I believe that it was important from Psalm 149 to see the unusual theme of God's judgment inserted in the psalm of praise. And that was important for us, I think, uh, to understand that. With that distinction, we can say that each of the psalms are so similar and have been helping, written to help us again to learn how to follow David's lifelong example of praising God no matter what. That is one of the takeaways for me uh, from this study of the book of Psalms that David sought to worship God in praise. And he worked at it, no matter what he was going through. And we know he went through a lot. He, he's written to us uh, from the heart. But he always ended up praising God. So we see at the beginning of both Psalms, verse 1, praise the Lord. 149, 1, 150, verse 1. Both Psalms begin in the exact same way. They call us to praise God. These psalms begin with the exhortation for us as the people of God to render unto God praise. We've seen that for us as Christians, it's ours to know and to continue to learn that our changing circumstances aren't really the cause of our joy and happiness. And if there's ever a people of God that should be learning that in the year 2020, it's us. Right? Our circumstances are not the cause of our joy and are not the cause of our happiness. And if we make them so, God has ways of teaching us, doesn't he? God has ways of training us. Take your eyes off of that and put your eyes on Jesus. And we've had to do that in this year. This has been a difficult year. That's why I've preached a series of sermons, if you've noticed, whose underlying theme has been, let's not be complainers, let's be praisers. It's not a word, I get it. But... Um, it works. Let's be praisers. Let's be Christians who are giving God 
praise in spite of our circumstance because our joy doesn't come from our circumstance. It comes from the God of our circumstance. So these psalms then, and the entirety of the book really, help us to be happy and hopeful because we know that it is the Lord alone who truly blesses us. And therefore the Lord alone whom we are to offer our praise. In Psalm 149, we're told that praise finds its expression so often in song. Look at verse 2, Psalm 149. We praise God in song, and in both of these we praise him for, this is kind of the layout uh, that David gives, let Israel rejoice in their maker, let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. In both Psalm 149 and 150, we're given praise points to help us move from being complainers to being a people of praise or praisers. And so remember, we're coming to the end of the book of Psalms, and these are points which have been highlighted throughout the book. And here we find them once again repeated in these last two chapters. What should that tell us as the people of God? It should tell us that these praise points are important. Not just something to slough over. And let's be honest, that's what we do, isn't it? When, when we see something repeated for us, we, we sort of have a, this idea, yeah, I get it. But that's not what we should do with the scriptures. And so we looked at some of these praise points last time. God is our maker. God is our king. God does mighty acts. God is excellent in greatness. That's the combination between both of those psalms. But today we want to consider these psalms from the perspective of how our praise should look coming from the people of God. This is so important. Remember our question, in the corporate setting, I'm not talking about when we're not in worship. I'm talking about in the corporate setting, our question, are we free to praise God in any way which we see fit, or does he regulate our praise as we worship him when we are gathered together on the Lord's day? Let's talk about that issue of worship. Because as you think of singing and as you think of praise and you think of what we're reading here in these two psalms, we're talking about worship. And the Bible makes it clear that all Christians must understand the nature of what the Bible defines as biblical worship. And then we have to also be sure that we are participating regularly in the corporate worship of God. This is because the Bible tells us that our desire to engage in true worship is actually a confirmation of our salvation in Jesus Christ. You better pay attention to that. Our desire to worship, our desire to engage is a confirmation of our salvation in Christ Jesus. A Christian who can long stay away from the worship of God, a Christian who can long find himself not giving a care about whether or not he comes to God's house and presents himself as a worshiper of the God of heaven, a Christian who can say, that eh, really doesn't bother me. I find God in the trees or in the lake or in the grass, or I don't really need to be in church. I don't have to be engaged in the public worship of God. It's a Christian who is disobeying his Bible. And you have to understand these truths. God is worthy of worship, and he's worthy of your worship. He's worthy of it. Recall then that the English word worship comes from the old English word worth-ship. W-O-R-T-H, 
S-H-I-P, worth-ship. That helps us to understand the basic meaning of what the church gathers together to do that we couldn't do as well as individuals. The church is responsible to give worship to God for the gift of his son. The church is responsible to give him worship as we praise him for his mercies and his grace and his goodness and his kindness to us. In fact, worship is to be seen in both the private and the corporate worship of God as we live our lives. But the way in which we might praise God outside of corporate worship may not be the way that we're to praise God inside on our Lord's Day worship. But in both contexts, whether it's private or corporate worship, we must remember terms like honor and respect and godly fear and joy are used for both our corporate and our personal worship of God. That means then, brethren, that worship is, is more than just what occurs in church on Sundays. Every day we're to offer ourselves as living sacrifices unto God, according to Romans 12, 1 and 2. That's an act of worship for every priest in the kingdom. And if you belong to Christ, he's made you a priest, according to Peter. And you have a responsibility to give yourself as a living sacrifice unto God. And it's my belief that you have that responsibility to do that every day. That's the act of worship for every priest in the kingdom. And I maintain that many times the corporate worship of God is so difficult for some because they do not worship God daily as individuals. It's like pulling teeth for some to come to church because throughout the course of the week, there's absolutely zero thought of how I'm to worship God in the private setting. Did you pray last week? Did you read your Bible last week? Did you, give, did you meditate upon God and his mercies and his grace to you? Did you render unto him? Here's an easy one. Did you render unto him thanks? Well, it was thanksgiving, for goodness sake. You have, a, you have a personal responsibility to your God. You have a personal responsibility to engage in relationship with him, to work that relationship with him. And you see, when you do that in the private way, when you do that in the private setting, when you lead your family in private in family devotions, when you're doing the work throughout the course of the week, guess what happens to, to the Lord's Day worship? It becomes much more of a joy, much more of a delight. And I, and I think we experience that here at Cornerstone, don't you? I think we experience the fact that, that we, we long to be together. We long for the end of this business don't we? We long for the end of it. And we long for the end of it because why we're glad we can meet and, and we pray for those who can't be with us. We long for it because it's just not what we know of worship and fellowship and being together as family. But if we're giving ourselves every day unto the Lord, this kind of worship becomes that much easier and that much more pleasurable. As MacArthur states, the source of most of the problems people have in their Christian lives relates to two things. Either they're not worshiping six days a week with their life, or they're not worshiping one day a week with the assembly of the saints. I think that's true. So since the time of the New Testament church's birth, the worship of God has remained an essential priority for the people of God. 
Max states this, so every believer has an obligation to understand its significance and practice worship continually. Our Lord Jesus Christ says to every one of us, you shall worship the Lord your God. But we must be careful. We must be careful as how we approach God and worship. And this is why we adhere to the regulative principle here at Cornerstone Bible Fellowship, which in short is this, don't bring into worship that which God has not asked for in worship. The regulative principle was codified by John Calvin, who took the principles of the Reformation regarding God's worship, and he worked at keeping the church under the rule of the scriptures in what she should offer unto God in her corporate worship. You've heard me <clears throat> excuse me, define this before and, and say to you that the difference between Luther and Calvin on this point was stark. And extrapolating their difference has grave differences in the application. Luther said, if the Bible doesn't forbid it, then go ahead and do it. Now, just walk down the road with that for a minute. Calvin said, if the Bible doesn't ask us for it, let's not bring it. And walk down that road for a minute. Calvin taught that the appropriate conduct is commanded in the word of God and given to us when we gather together as his people to worship him. He said, we may not adopt any device in our worship which seems fit to ourselves, but to look to the injunctions of him who alone is entitled to prescribe what he wants in worship. Therefore, if we would have him approve our worship, this rule which he everywhere enforces with the utmost strictness must be carefully observed. God disapproves of all modes of worship not expressly sanctioned by his word. So agreeing with Calvin, the Westminster Assembly later wrote this, the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by God himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and the devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in Holy Scripture. So there are three elements of the regulative principle which help us to know if we have warrant to offer something in the corporate worship of God. Number one, do we have direct biblical command? If not, number two, do we have an approved scriptural example? If not, number three, do we have a good and necessary inference? Is there a good and necessary inference? Right? That just makes biblical sense. So these three questions help us to offer God that which is appropriate to him in worship. So I want you to think of these. We're going to return to them. With these in mind, what elements from these two psalms can we say should be incorporated in the Lord's Day worship of God? Well, first off is singing. Both of these psalms speak much the importance of singing. And we've spoken much of this aspect of worship throughout the Psalms. So I'm only going to highlight this element of worship today. But not surprisingly, in a book of 150 hymns, we see that singing is important to God. So we see that the first question of the regulative principle is satisfied regarding singing. Why? Because we're commanded to do so. We're commanded multiple times in Psalm 149 and 150 to do so, to sing. The Hebrew word, now this is interesting, the Hebrew word used in Psalm 149 for sing is the word sheer. And it literally means to sing. 
But the Hebrew word in Psalm 150 is different. It's halu. And that word means to shine. This meaning is seen then in both the words hallelujah and praise, which certainly can incorporate singing. But here's the difference. It's not exclusive to singing. That's important. So the theme of the Psalms, Christ's work, his kingdom, his mercy, his forgiveness, etc., all cause us to overflow in thanksgiving, seen most evidently in the singing of our praises to him. That's why I get animated when I talk to you about singing and the church's singing. And I love the fact that we sing. I love the fact that we sing here in this church because God asks for it, he commands it, he wants it, and we can engage fully in it. Both of these psalms, therefore, tell us to sing. And I would say again that there's real spiritual power and benefit to music whose goal and theme is to worship and exalt Christ. This is why we're so careful as to the theme and to the style of our music here in the corporate worship of CBF. For we desire that we, uh, all that we do is to bring honor and exalt our Savior. And that's just as true as we think about the music that we sing unto God. So singing is a commanded part of the corporate worship of God. I'm just talking about Psalm 149 and 150. What's next? Playing instruments. We see that at the the latter portion of of, uh, Psalm 150. Play with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the lute and the harp. Praise him with timbrel and dance. Praise him with stringed instruments and flutes. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with clashing cymbals. It's important to note that the Hebrew word used here again by David, different from 149, halu, has more than just the meaning of singing built into it in our praise. And we can clearly see from the latter portion of Psalm 150 that playing instruments then is an important way for us to praise God. It is an important way for us to, according to the Hebrew word, make him shine. Now here we see the use of all of these instruments and Gill comments that these instruments are expressive of the highest praise and joy of joy shown in former times. Calvin says it this way, the psalmist in exhorting believers to pour forth all their joy in the praises of God enumerates one upon the other, all the musical instruments which were then in use and reminds them that they ought to all be consecrated to the worship of God. Calvin even speaks to the fact that this psalm is not exhaustive in listing the kind of instruments that the regulative principle would allow in the worship of God. So Psalm 150 evidences that God has commanded his people play instruments of praise to him on worship, of which the scriptures are also replete with examples. As one source states, we see in Psalm 150 that it's appropriate to praise the Lord with nearly every instrument that's ever been invented. Even those instruments not mentioned specifically in this chapter are only new forms of or uh, derivations of those listed therein. Goes without saying then that some instruments may not be wise choices for worship in some contexts, but God never absolutely forbids particular instruments in worship. Elaborate music should also be used in worship since it requires the best of musicians' skills and nothing but the best ought to be offered in the church's praise of God, says Sproul. So wisdom must be used here. Not every instrument is wise for every choice and context in the worship service. 
We must be guided in what is appropriate for corporate singing and for conveying the words of the tunes that we use. Again, this is why we follow the regulative principle here at CBF to help us use all appropriate means of being able to joyfully worship God. So both singing and the playing of instruments meets the first question of the regulative principle. For clearly we're commanded to, do, to both sing, clearly we're commanded to play instruments in corporate worship. Now, you will likely note that in the reading of these psalms, there's the mention of another component of praise. What is it? It's that of dance. Look at verse 3 of Psalm 149. Let them praise his name with the dance. Let them sing praises to him with the timbrel and the harp. Look at verse 4 of Psalm 150. Praise him with the timbrel and the dance. Praise him with the stringed instruments and the flutes. Well, you no doubt have heard or seen of what is known as liturgical dance. Anybody? Anybody? Liturgical dance. We have a special treat for you today, Mark McCann. <laughs> is not going to dance. <laughs> Liturgical dance. It's very, very popular today. And I've been in places where liturgical dance has been used. I think of a worship service <clears throat> that I was in. It wasn't a, a um, Lord's Day worship service, but a, a service that I was in. And banners and dancing and everything going on. Okay? Adherents say that this is dance offered in the corporate worship of God as a means of the corporate expression of praise. Now, let's say at the outset, we do see a distinction between dancing in the Old Testament that is given in the corporate worship setting and that which is done in celebration of nationalistic processions, secular festivities, and just extemporaneous expressions of joy before God outside of worship. And I mean Lord's Day worship. So clearly there are biblical examples of celebratory dancing outside the context of worship. We're not focusing on those kinds of dances today, for we will see that such times of dancing are still distinct because they're not centered around what constituted the temple worship of God in the Old Testament. These, these are important distinctions, okay? Now, in Old Testament corporate worship, it's important to note that the distinctive element of that which was defined as Old Testament worship, corporate worship, involves sacrifice. The main purpose of the element of gathered worship. Such sacrifice in the Old Testament always pointed God's people ahead to the promised one, the Lamb of God, the final sacrifice. So the offering of sacrifice changed the whole dynamic of worship. Its focus was on God's redemptive provision and the need for sacrifice offered in faith to him in order to be made right with God through faith. The worship which God commanded on the Sabbath was therefore distinct from all that the people did throughout the course of the week. As one source states, under the old covenant, sacrifices were made daily at the tabernacle, the temple. The worship was continual, but... There were special commands given to Israel regarding the sacred assembly held on the Sabbath. 
according to Leviticus 23.3 and Numbers 28.9. So it is the sacred assembly, that's what we're talking about, meeting on the Sabbath that we have in mind here as we think of what we're to offer to God in praise at such times. So we want to consider those texts which would, as the regulative principle calls for, either give direct command, approved example, or provide a good and necessary inference for the use of liturgical dance in Lord's Day worship. Are there texts which would justify the use of liturgical dance in our corporate worship services today? Well, let me just begin by defining liturgical dancing. One source states this. Just listen to this, okay? Liturgical dance is simply a Christian form of prayer and worship through bodily movement. Like most dance styles, music accompanies liturgical dance. The music can be live or pre-recorded. Mostly performed by females, this beautiful form of worship can either be improvised via via the emotions felt during certain songs or previously choreographed for a more organized presentation of the dance. Liturgical dance was practically non-existent until the 20th century. Hmm. Unlike many other dance styles that have been around for centuries. However, the start of liturgical dance actually originates back in biblical times with many examples of worshipful movement recorded in the Old Testament. It has also remained popular in other regions of the world but is still fairly new to the Christian in the West. Now, this is an important question for us to answer because really it doesn't just deal with dance, it deals with drama. So what, 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 what does the pastor do when someone comes and says to the pastor, Pastor, God has gifted me in the dance and I would like to dance as uh, the hymns are being sung, the chords are being sung. Or I would like to dance while you're preaching. You know, most of you want to dance when I'm finished preaching. <laughs> what is the pastor to say? Does the pastor say, oh, well, thank, please, come and do that. We would love that. Come and do that. Does, does the pastor then say to the person who comes and says, Pastor, God has gifted me in painting. And I would like to Paint. Why your worship? Why the worship service is going on? Because I, that's my expression of joy and praise to God. Can I want to do that? Well, come and and paint. Certainly, Pastor God has gifted me to ride a unicycle, and I really find the greatest expression of praise for me when I'm on my unicycle. And so I, I would I would sincerely worship. In the riding of my unicycle, by the singing and the praising and the, the dancing and the painting is going. You see where I'm going with this? What do we say? Now, does the pastor say, oh, we just don't do that here. No. You, stop that. Is that what he says? Does the pastor have something better to say? Does he say, well, you see, that's lovely. Thank you so much. But that's just not our tradition. We don't do that here. That's not our tradition. Is that what the pastor falls back on? I'm talking about why it's so important for, under, for us to understand. What do we do? Do we do this just because this is our habit and here at Cornerstone, that's all we do? But other churches, wow, 
they do this and this and this and this and this. Why do we do just this? Well, what's the answer that we would give to those people? Because the reality is, and I'm thinking about dance specifically, right? But the reality is many people will point to the dances that are seen in the Old Testament as validation for the use of dance today in our New Testament worship services. And we would admit there are a number of texts which refer to dancing. There are actually very few, but there are some. But for our purposes, again, we're only going to consider those texts that seem often to be used to justify the use of dance in the corporate worship setting today. And in this, I'm helped by uh, Edwards in his book, Shall We Dance? Let's consider first Exodus chapter 50, verses 20 through 22. First reference that we have, really, and it's Miriam's dance. I just want you to turn there. We're not going to look at each of these, but I want you to look at this one. Exodus chapter 15. The context, we're coming uh, after the crossing of the Red Sea. We see Exodus 15, then is the song of Moses. And then we come to verse 20 and 22. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in her hand, and the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. And Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he, is, he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. So this is the first recorded dance, the dance of Miriam and the other women after the crossing of the Red Sea. Now, our first question, are we given command regarding dance in this text? Well, the answer is no. Is there a proved example in this text? Well, many say yes. And they say, just look at Miriam. Yet consider what we read here. It is significant for us to note this is not corporate Sabbath worship. This occurred, in fact, even before the Sabbath had been established via the Ten Commandments for the children of Israel. So what do we see? This is a worship celebration before the law was given. And importantly, from this text, we see no divine command we see no approved example, and therefore we see no necessary inference which would identify liturgical dance as an element of assembled temple worship. Now, go you a step further, which is why I wanted you to take a look at this. We notice who didn't dance, okay? Particularly Moses. Now, I'm not saying that men, we don't see that in the Old Testament. I'm just talking about this text, this passage, right? And it's interesting because, and this is just, I normally don't give you too much speculation, right? Although I try to hold back from that. But just, let's just read on for a moment. Verse 22, so Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. Then they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now, when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name was called Marah. And the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. When he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. Look at verse 26. And, and God said, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in the sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Now, 
I think a reasoned argument could be made, and some have made this, that rather than an, a positive example of dance, this is actually a negative example because God withheld water for them in a drought for three days thereafter. And then he says that in verse 26, listen to me. Do what I'm telling you. Obey my commands. Not saying that that's entirely a proof text of that. Just saying it's a possibility. The next text that we see is Judges 21, 16 through 25. And here we read of the dance of the daughters of Shiloh. And we read here that the daughters of Shiloh were engaged in ceremonial activity that was a part of the yearly feast. So in this text, do we see explicit command from God to dance? No. Verse 21 of the text says, if the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance. We're told that the dancing of the maidens here in this text was probably part of an autumn festival. Eaton suggests that this dance had association with marriage and fertility, both in the family and in the field. If this is so, brethren, this is hardly a model for the worship of Jehovah. A fertility dance for the field and a fertility dance for the maidens. So from this text, we see no divine command, we see no approved example, and we see no necessary inference which would identify liturgical dance as an element of assembled temple worship. 2 Samuel chapter 16, 12 through 23, and 1 Chronicles 15, 1 through 16, 3. This is probably the most referred to text in the issue of dance because who's dancing here? Do you know offhand? David. David is dancing here. And we read of in, in, in these texts, David's second attempt to bring the ark to Jerusalem after about three months after the disaster of the first attempt. And while there are commands given here about singers, and while there are commands given here about musicians, it's very significant to point out there are no commands given about dancing. So no command to dance. There are different Hebrew words employed in these verses describing David's joy at the return of the Ark of the Covenant. The word karar, meaning to rotate and move around, we get the sense that David then whirled with joy. The word, the next words, you'll like this because it's probably where we get our English word from, although I didn't look at, spend the time to look it up. The Hebrew word is pezaz. You like that, right? So karar meaning to rotate, move around a circle. Pizzazz means to jump. Right? I'm here. Pizzazz means to jump. So David whirled and he jumped for joy. Third word that's used is rakad. And it means to skip. And so literally to skip for joy. Or you've heard the term, he leaped for joy. Okay? So what we're seeing here is that David is ecstatic with joy. He sprang about like an excited child. He jumped and he skipped. Now, none of these descriptions bring to mind the kind of image that we generally think of with dancing. Rather, this was the spontaneous overflow of an excited worshiper. And evidently, it was unusual enough to be recorded for David in the scripture. So, command... No. Do we see approved approved example? Even if we grant that David was dancing as the Hebrews would have done, 
Is this temple worship? Is this happening in temple worship? Well, the answer is no, isn't it? As Edwards comments, clearly what David did was exceptional. It was not his customary way of worship. Never again are these words used of David's worship. None of them refers to formal dance. To use David as an example of dance and worship is to force far too much into the words employed by the Holy Spirit to describe David's activity. Thus was David's first and last recorded excursion into dance and worship, and none of the later kings copied David, nor the priests, nor the prophets. So again from this text... We see no divine command, we see no improved example, and we see no necessary inference which would identify liturgical dance as an element of assembled corporate temple worship. Well, the last then is where we find ourselves, Psalm 149, verse 3, and Psalm 150 and verse 4. Very clearly, we are told here to dance. For we read of the joy of God's people overflowing into music making and dancing. However, what is the framework which is given as the sphere of such dancing? Is it corporate temple worship? Some say so. Some say it is. Because David speaks of praising God in the assembly, in verse 1. And praising God in the sanctuary, verse 1 of Psalm 150. So some would say, well, yes, here's the command to do this in the assembled worship. But David also speaks of praising God from their beds in Psalm 149 and verse 5. And then he says in Psalm 150 and 6, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. What are we learning? Clearly then the context of these two chapters is more than just the assembled worship of God. Rather, the Psalms call us to praise the Lord in all spheres of life. That's what David is writing in these two Psalms. David works this out in a way that fits the admonition of 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do it all to the glory of God. That's what David is saying here. So he breaks down this theme that everything the people of God should do should be an act of praise to God. This includes their worship in the assembly, according to verses 1. Their dancing, according to verses 3 through 4. Their music, verses 4 in each text. And even their wars, according to verses 6 through 9. So these two psalms do not set out to discuss the content of Jewish worship in the temple. They simply claim that everything in the life of God's people from dancing to war should be to the honor and to the praise of God. That's a very significant distinction. It's a critical element for us to understand. Let's add to that. Do we see directions for how dancing is to occur in the temple worship of God? Can you point to an Old Testament text where God would say, this is how you're to do this in my worship? Do we see that? Well, the answer is no. That's significant because we know that God is very specific and detailed in his worship. That's why we read of choir leaders, orchestral uh, uh, conductors, But tellingly, we never read of dance instructors. As Thomas states, if someone suggests dancing is a valid aspect of public worship, then the question must be asked, where's the biblical justification for it? It is a salutary fact that no office of choreographer existed in the temple. But you could knock on a few church doors today and find an office of a choreographer. 
So from these last two chapters, Psalm 149 and 150, we see no divine command. We're talking about in the corporate worship setting. No approved example in the corporate worship setting. And no necessary inference which would identify liturgical dance as an element of temple worship. So we may rightly conclude then that in spite of the best efforts of those condoning liturgical dance, it must be said that as far as the way dance is defined today, it is nowhere found in the Old Testament directly in the context of worship, assembled worship. And that brings us to consider this question. Is there then a place for liturgical dance in the New Testament? So while we see other elements of <clears throat> excuse me, worship carried over in the New Testament, and we see this such as singing, reading, instrumentation by necessary inference, we have no command, we have no approved example, nor do we have any necessary inference that dances to be carried over in the New Testament worship service as a means of praise to God. We see no example of a worship service in the New Testament where dancing in praise to God was a part of the service for worship for the call together church, not one. Furthermore, liturgical dance is absent from church history, meaning that there's been no historical orthodox understanding that the church is to be offering God praise through dance. In the New Testament, there is a total absence of any reference to dance in the context of worship. For the Christian, this ought to imply, at the very least, that dance formed no part of the worship activity of first century Christians. Now, all of this does not detract from the fact that God is worthy of praise. But he is only desirous of being worshipped and praised in the way in which he mandates. But we note that many times his praise is to be given with exuberance and joy. For indeed, as his people, we have much to praise him for. When we worship God and we do so according to his dictates, it is both emotionally engaging and it is both pleasing to God because it's given according to his word and for his benefit. But here is the reality. While we can experience that exuberance and that emotion, and while God deserves it, worship is not necessarily qualified like you had a good worship today or you had a bad worship today because you get a chill up your leg. That's not the definition of what true worship is. Worship is us coming together, giving in a committed way unto God what he has asked for. And remarkably, when that happens, we don't need all the world's magic things to do. Something happens so deep in us that it couldn't be compared to what we would get if we tried to use other means to achieve some chill up our leg. And that is the point for us. We want to give what God has asked for further. We want to give what God commands. And so I believe with my heart that Calvin is exactly right. As opposed to Luther. Let's not bring it if God hasn't required it. Let's not bring it if God doesn't ask for it. Either in command Approved example are necessary inference. That's what we do. 
And that's, that's the goal of what we do. And that, that is the answer then to the person who comes and says, I am gifted in the dance. The answer isn't, oh, we just don't do that here. That's not the answer. The answer isn't, oh, well, that's just not our tradition. The answer is, that's not what God asked for in his worship. And, and we don't see that in the context. I'm not saying we don't see dancing in the Old Testament. I'm telling you, we don't see it in the context of gathered Sabbath worship. We don't see it in the Old Testament, and we see no carryover in the New Testament. By the way, as we prepare to conclude, that's significant because people want to argue for liturgical dancing. Well, you know, we can say that, you know, we can see some examples as they see it in the Old Testament. Wait, wait, wait. That's part of the reason we say very plainly to our Presbyterian brethren, we don't see one example in the New Testament of a, a baby being baptized. Not one. That's a pretty strong argument against infant baptism, isn't it? Same thing is true with liturgical dance. We don't see, we don't see an example of it in the corporate gathered worship setting. So let's give application. The truth is that we have much to praise God for. And the evidence of his greatness is given certainly throughout the book of Psalms, as well as throughout the whole of the scriptures. I hope that this has been a fruitful survey for you. I trust it has been. And, and I'm so thankful that our God is so great and has blessed us so much that he is deserving of praise. But it's the praise and worship which are according to his own dictates. While in worship, we can sing joyously to him, and we should. We can pray joyously to him, and we can engage joyously with his word. And in so doing, we can know that we're offering God worship in the way that he desires. And in that, therefore, is our ultimate joy. And according to the psalmist, that sets our feet to dancing. But that dancing is outside the confines of Lord's Day worship. Make sense? God's people said... And so, on this note of giving God joyous praise, we end our survey of the Psalms. Father, thank you for your kindness and your mercies to us in the privilege that has been ours to explore, not even in a full way, but just in a survey, the depths and the riches of your word. Seen in the Psalms and our survey of them, in these last years together. Thank you for a people who's willing to accept the preaching of the word of God. Thank you for your word, which is worthy to spend dedicated time in. Thank you for the privilege that has been mine to look at it. So, Father, we just pray that you would use what we know to help us to be the kind of worshipers that Jesus says the Father seeks. Bless this study, we pray, to the glory of Jesus Christ Blessed in the advancement of his kingdom in the hearts of men. And we'll give you the thanks as we ask and pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.